It's so good to be here and to be with you this morning. I pray that today we can glean some things from the Feast of Grace that only takes place at the table of the Gospel. God's been so faithful as we have methodically been moving along in the Gospel of Matthew to kind of meet us where we are, and I pray that God does that today. Speaking of the Gospel, if someone were to ask you to explain your understanding of the Gospel, how would you respond to that? What would you say? Now, I think that's a very legitimate question because... A carpenter, for example, he has to be very well educated in the skill of building. A chef has to be very well rounded with a multitude of recipes and he has to have a knowledge of how foods interact with each other. And as Christians, we have our area of expertise as well. So it serves us well to be very familiar with the intricate details of the gospel. A well-known Christian artist was asked that very question. Explain your understanding of the gospel, and this is how he responded. What a great question. I guess probably my instinct is to say that it's Jesus coming, living, dying, and being resurrected, and his inaugurating the already and not yet of all things being restored to himself. And that happening by way of himself. The being made right of all things. That process, both beginning and being a reality in the lives and hearts of believers. And yet a day coming when it will be more fully realized. But the good news, the gospel, I would say, is the news of his kingdom coming. The inaugurating of his kingdom coming. That's my instinct. Now, I have to ask, are you confused? I find myself a little bit confused. And I say this with the most amount of respect and humility. I'm sure that this is a man who has a serious love for the Lord. I'm sure that he is intellectually, theologically sound. And I'm sure that he is able to express his affections toward the Lord through music in a way that I don't know about. And he's all the better for it. But there is a reality of the gospel that we have to talk about here in light of what he said. The gospel has to be shared. The gospel has to be loved. The gospel has to be lived outside of something other than instinct. Instinct is an intuitive response to something or an intuitive response to a circumstance without any prior experience in relation to that circumstance. Instinct is an intuitive response that is completely void of learning based upon a prior experience. If I feel that my children are threatened, listen, my instinct immediately kicks in. I don't first, to, I don't first have to have had a lesson. I don't first have to have had been educated on what I need to do to protect my children. I immediately respond in an unrehearsed way based upon my instinct. But listen, beloved, the gospel is so much different than that. It's so much different than that because it first has to be experienced. And even after it is experienced, it has to continually be learned of. It is the object of our further education. It is the subject matter that we sit at the feet of 
for lengthy seasons of our Christian lives. And the reality is the more that I learn about the intricate details of the gospel, the more that I am shaped by the gospel, the more that I am relational with the God of the gospel, that's when, beloved, that I begin to instinctively respond in biblical ways. When I become more familiar with the God who invaded humanity and challenged and charged men to come to himself, when I become more familiar with those details, that's when I instinctively respond in biblical ways to my wife and my children and my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's when I instinctively respond in biblical ways to matters such as faith and hope and forgiveness and love. But even then... It is so important to note that it's really not me at all. It's the person of Jesus Christ in me. It's the reality of the new creation in me. Listen, that's what makes a man, that's what makes a woman a disciple. If a disciple is a learner of a person, then a disciple of Jesus Christ is first and foremost a learner of of the gospel. And my prayer this morning is that we would never dwarf that idea that being a disciple or making disciples is something less or more than falling passionately in love with the intricate details of the Savior who didn't merely come to preach the gospel but came to be the gospel for ourselves. Let's explore that idea together as we open our Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 22 together. Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Today we're going to talk about paying taxes to Caesar. It's tax time. This is going to be relevant. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him. The Pharisees have disciples. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Man, are they buttering him up. Verse 17, tell us then, what thing? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. We're talking about a poll tax that's paid annually by each individual. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and they went away. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to you this morning, Lord. We just right now pray that God our hearts would be open. And that we would be a people this morning that would be pliable. And that God the reality of your truth would override our emotions. Your objective truth would confront our subjective feelings. 
and that God, we would be the better for it. That, Father, we would be transformed more into the likeness of your Son. Father, teach us the different applications that you want each and every one of us to make this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would do these things, ultimately, God, for your glory. We ask for your help. We ask for your aid. We ask for your spirit. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to talk to you about two things this morning. Two principles that I want to pull from this passage. I want to talk to you about a disciple's understanding of authority. A disciple's understanding of authority. And then secondly, I want to talk to you about a disciple's submission to the authority of the gospel. A disciple's submission to the authority of the gospel. So let's look at a disciple's understanding of authority. Verse 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We can't talk for very long about having an understanding of authority outside of the context of the authority that the gospel has on each and every one of our lives. That's the reality of our redemption. The reality of our redemption is coupled with the claim that God demands every aspect of our lives. We live, we breathe, we have our being in a born-again context that suggests that we're not our own. Now let me tell you what that's going to mean sometimes. It's going to mean that because we're not our own, there are going to be times that we have to render things to men. But it's important to note from the outset that we render things to men as under authority to God because all things belong to God. Now what an explanation of the life of Christ himself. Jesus was born into humanity. Jesus lived his life as a poor man. Jesus was certain that he would speak only the things that God was laying on his heart. He would do only the things that the Father had him do. Jesus would pray sorrowfully in the garden. Jesus would stand innocently in front of his accusers. He would be treated ruthlessly as a condemned criminal. He would die quietly as atonement for our sin. And it's important to note that all that he did, he was simply rendering back to the Father all that was the Father's. R.W. Dell states, the real truth is that while he came to preach the gospel, his chief object in coming was that there might be a gospel to preach. And I can only add that Christ spent himself rendering to the Father the salvation that the Father demanded in order that there could be a gospel. And listen, beloved, we learn of obligation greatly from the Savior, chiefly from the Savior, primarily from the Savior, only from the Savior. Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians. We don't know that much about the Herodians except for the fact that obviously they were identified with Herod. We also know that they had a very strong political alliance with Rome. It's important to note that Christ's response hinges on who owns what. Give, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Listen, there's not a lot that needs to be uncovered here. If Christ says, pay that tax, then what's going to happen is he's going to be viewed as anti-Jewish. He's going to be viewed as a man who is worshiping Caesar, who has 
identified himself as a form of deity or at least a demigod. And there's going to be this uprising from the Jews and hopefully what's going to happen is that he's going to lose all the support that he has from the Jewish people because that's why they haven't arrested him yet because of their fear of the people. Now if he says don't pay the tax then the Herodians, they're going to leave the scene, they're going to go back to the proper Roman authorities like the spies that Luke calls them, and they're going to condemn Christ as an opposer to Rome, and that's going to lead to his arrest and preferably, hopefully, a very quick verdict of guilty and death. And Jesus says, listen, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Render to God the things that are God. Listen, guys, this coin, it bears the image of Caesar's. It's his. He has this coin. He's minted this coin. And if he wants some of it back, give it to him. But do it with the understanding of what really belongs to God. And listen, that's everything. David said it best in Psalm 24.1. The earth and everything in it. The world and its inhabitants, it all belongs to the Lord. Everything, including Caesar's money that you hold in your hand, it belongs to the Lord. And as you give that back to Caesar, do it with the understanding that your submission is ultimately to the Lord and not Caesar. Paul said in Romans 13, 1 through 4, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. The reality is this. As we're giving back to Caesar, as we're giving back to the United States government, as we're giving back to the state, as we're paying city taxes, we are doing it with the very clear understanding that we are giving back to the various forms of government based on the reality that all forms of government ultimately belong to God and they are only over us based upon God's design and they are always designed for our good. Now that's a game changer. It's a game changer because I can't get caught up in a debate anymore of whether or not the government really is working for our good. I can't get caught up in that debate anymore. I can't get my feathers ruffled when I'm watching Fox News and I'm seeing all of these things take a downward spiral in the world. I can't get caught up in that debate because the disciple of Christ who really understands authority recognizes that everything belongs to God. You know what? The government may not be working for our good, but there is a God who is sovereign over all forms of government who I know is working for my good. I don't have to come to a place where I put my total trust and confidence in any form of government. Now, that would be nice. We pray that that would happen. We vote that that would take place. But I don't have to come to a place where all of my trust is completely in my government because as a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
who understands authority and recognizes that all things ultimately belong to God. See, the key is when I begin to fall in love with the intricate details of the gospel, I don't have to place my full trust in my government because I'm learning to trust the Savior who has placed me under this role and who is Lord over the government that I'm a part of. I don't have to place my future hope in the shaping up of my government. I hope that that happens. I pray that that happens. Let's vote that that happens. But as a disciple who understands authority and knows that everything belongs to God, as I learn to love God through the intricate details of the gospel, that's when I really learn where I have to place my hope. It's not going to be in any form of government. We're talking about a national form of government. We'll talk about a more specific and more personal form of government in just a moment. But I don't have to place my hope in any form of government because through the intricate details of the gospel, I'm learning to place my hope in a God who cares about the hearts of his people. A God who cares about every detail of every life that is represented here today. And I know that God is going to tend to his people in the midst of and possibly even through the shortcomings. And you know what? Possibly even through the corruptions that can exist in the forms of government today or any form of authority. What we have to realize is that when God is telling me and you to be subject to governing authorities, listen, beloved, do you know what he's ultimately doing? He is ultimately showing care and causing us to address the rebellion of our hearts that in all reality has no desire to be subject to anyone or anything. God cares more about the heart of his people than he does the inconveniences or the troubles that may come from any form of government. Listen, government is a necessary tool so that God will teach us the key elements of discipleship that say, guess what? Your life is not your own on any level. It's all about the person of Christ. And being a disciple, an understanding of authority helps me realize that this passage of Scripture has so much more at its root and its heart than just paying taxes. Listen, is this about paying taxes? Sure, in a sense it is. I think that Christ is saying, listen, pay your taxes. It's not your image that you see on that dollar bill. So if the government wants it back, give it back. But my complaining at tax time, my complaining when the government wants something from me, my complaining when the government in my home is demanding something from me. Listen, that's just an insight to a deeper problem that I have with authority. Ultimately, the authority of God over my life. So we have to conclude, what's the ultimate answer here? Do I beat myself into submission? Do I beat myself down so that I will be submissive to the forms of government that are, that are in authority over me? I don't think that's going to be the solution. But let me tell you what I know the solution is. A disciple's submission to the authority of the gospel. That's how, we, that's how we submit to the forms of government over us. We first submit to the authority of the gospel itself over our lives. Look in verse 19. Jesus says this. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness... <clears throat> An inscription is this. They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, 
Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Christ takes this denarius and he says, look, this denarius, this piece of, this piece of copper, this piece of gold has an image stamped on it. It's the image of a man. Therefore, this belongs to a man. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, I think what Christ is doing is he's very carefully and very wisely setting us up for the flip side of that idea, which is this. You are made in an image. As a man, as a human, there's an image stamped into your person. There's an image stamped into your mind. There's an image stamped on your heart, and it's the image of God. Because you were made in God's image. Now what that means, the fact that God has taken you and His image is stamped upon you, that means that everything about you needs to be rendered to God. You are in the image of God, so therefore render to God the things that are God's. Every aspect of your life. You bear God's image, therefore you belong to God. And see, the reality is, guys, we can talk about authority upon big scales, national scales. We can talk about submitting to that authority. Let's talk for a minute about submitting to authority on a more personal level, a more personal form of government. Let's talk about submitting to the authority that's established in your home. You know, we've got a lot of teenagers here. <clears throat> Are you submissive to the leadership of your parents? Because the reality is, your submission to God, it's going to be based upon and seen through the way that you are submitting and dealing with dad and mom. And if for a moment you begin to see and recognize that there's this rebellion that's beginning to rise up, it's real important that you recognize from the outset who that rebellion is being directed to ultimately. Ultimately, it's being directed toward God Himself. If we can't be submissive to the leadership and the form of government that God has in our homes, if we can't be submissive to our parents, then we're probably not going to be very submissive to the Lord. Listen, wives, are you being submissive to the leadership, to the form of government that God has placed, the way that we should live in our homes? Wives, listen, young girls, brides to be, are you submissive to the government structure, the leadership structure that God has placed in the home where you are submissive to your husband the way that the bride of Christ is submissive to the head of the church, Jesus Christ? Are you finding yourself submissive to the leadership of your husband? Because Paul would look at a marriage and say, you know what, it's a real big mystery, but ultimately what we see in it is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's a very good picture of Christ and his church. So the way that we are submissive to our husbands in our home really is a very great interpretation of our perspective of the gospel. Husbands, are you submissive to the leadership of the Lord in your life as you lead your family? Are you submissive to the counsel of the Word of God as you lead your family? Or do you have that temptation to sometimes abuse that authority that God's given you and not lead in a scriptural perspective? Let me assure you that God cares so much more about our sinful and indifferent responses to authority than He does about the inconveniences and troubles that authority may bring our way. As a matter of fact, He will use 
government structure. He will use authority, whether it's on a national level, whether it's in our home. He will use authority for the purpose of revealing sin in our lives. <clears throat> the Gauls were a warlike people who in ancient times inhabited what is now France and Belgium. And by the time of the Christian era, they had been conquered by Rome. And the Roman Empire had complete control. During the Christian era, believers began to come in and they shared the gospel with the Gauls, who were warlike people to a large degree. And what they noticed when the warriors... When they would be baptized, they would be immersed in water. But it was they noticed that all of the warriors, they kept their right hand held out of the water at all times when they were being immersed. And later they found out why. Because any time that a battle or a confrontation would break out, they would proclaim very quickly, my right hand is unbaptized. And they would take that right hand and they would grab their sword, they would grab their axe, they would grab their club, and they would quickly go to war. The authority of the gospel is such, beloved, that Christ calls for every aspect of our lives, even that right hand that sometimes wants to engage in conflict and wants to engage in war. Jesus Christ demands that from us. Now, we can look at that and we can say, you know what, man, I am struggling with the idea of being submissive to the various forms of of authority that God has placed in my life. Because I want to tell you, around every turn and quarter that we make, it's there. If you are an employee, you've got authority over your life. And we submit to that authority as a reflection of ultimately a submission to God. But listen, guys, it's there. It's everywhere. It's in our workplace. It's in our homes. It's in our churches. It's everywhere that we turn now, we want to say, you know what, man, it's tough sometimes, and I understand that. But Christ's love relationship with the Father completely changes the dynamics of what that looks like and how that feels. One of the greatest lessons that we learn from the person of Christ is that the heart of a disciple or the heart of a learner of the gospel is unique and tender in the sense that the more we become intimate, with the intricate details of the gospel, although, listen, although the words of Christ and the meaning behind the words of Christ remain the same, the attitude of discipleship begins to change. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Following, following Christ still means there's a cost involved. Guess what? That's never going to change. Never going to change. Following Christ means that there's always a cross to carry. and There's never going to be a transformation where that cross is less weighty or less burdensome. Following Christ is always going to mean a denying of self. It's always going to expect a saying no to me for the sake and the cause of Jesus Christ. That's always going to happen. The details, the intricate details of the gospel that we're called to fall in love with, listen, they don't change the reality of the cost. They don't change the reality of the fact that we are called to be a people submitted to the many forms of authority that are over us. Falling in love with the intricate details of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the person of Jesus Christ, although it doesn't change the reality of counting the cost, it does change how counting the cost is perceived. 
because submitting to the authority of the gospel is not about always tallying up our losses, counting the cost and following Jesus Christ in the same sense. It's about tallying up and adding up what is gained. How many of us have entered into a marriage and tallied up and kept a record of all that we had to lose to be married? I mean, how many of us have really done that? Well, when I got married, this is what I had to give up. I lost freedom. I lost my freedom. You know, I lost the freedom to stay out late with the guys and be about whatever business that I wanted to be about. And it may not have been bad, but I had to lose that freedom. I had to give that up. I had to lose some financial independence. I can't afford the things that I once afforded when I was seen. I had to give up personal goals because those personal goals are no longer best for my family. Listen, how many of us actually did that? We can add up our losses. Perhaps we have added up our losses. Perhaps we probably should add up our losses. But I want to tell you something. If we add up our losses, it should only be for the sake of measuring our losses against what we've really gained. And what we've really gained in marriage far outweighs the things that we had to lose to do without it. If I am preoccupied with what I have had to give up in order to be married, the problem is that I've yet to understand what it is that I've actually gained in marriage. Jesus said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that thing. When we begin to fall in love with the intricate details of the gospel, when we begin to look at the life of Christ, and we begin to fall in love with the reality of what the Savior did for our behalf, we will find ourselves like Paul, willing, and you know what, even desirous of suffering loss in the order of what we see will be gained. When we begin to fall in love with the details of the gospel and we begin to go through that process and we recognize our losses, the conclusion that we come to is still, guess what? We win. And you know why we win? We win because of what A.B. Simpson said. The gospel tells rebellious men that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven opened wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the brokenhearted comforted, the sorrow and misery of the fall undone. Listen, beloved, that is a win for us. And in order to give up things, in order to obtain that gain, we're all the better for it to the glory of God. I want to ask if you would to bow your heads for a moment. Because I know, I know, I know what we're thinking. I know what some of us are thinking because I have those thoughts. We're thinking, you know what? I just really don't know who I can trust here. I don't know that I can trust my government. I don't know that I can trust any governing authorities over me. 
I don't know if I can trust my parents because I don't know that I trust their motives for handling my life. I don't know that I can trust my husband because I just don't know about his ability to lead me right. I don't know about my ability to follow the Lord because I'm concerned that sometimes my desire for my family may skewer my ability to follow the Lord completely. I know what we're thinking. Each and every one of us were a bit skeptical about the idea of submitting to authority because authority is in the realm of humanity. You know what? As humans, man, we blow it. We are failures. That's why one of the first things that I try to let everybody know about myself on the outset is I'm going to let you down. You know why? Because I'm human. I'm sinful. It's going to happen. It's a given. And that causes us to be a bit skeptical. And so we find ourselves looking at different people in our lives and different authorities in our lives, and we don't trust people. We don't trust, we don't trust our government. We don't trust our spouses. We don't trust our pastors. We don't trust our leaders. We just don't trust people. But you know what? Let me tell you the good news. The good news is, as much as we want to trust these people, because you know what, there it is, you may have a legitimate reason for not completely feeling as if you can just turn yourselves over. But let me give you the good news. The good news is this. Ultimately, when you submit to any type of authority over your life, you're ultimately submitting to the leadership of God himself. You know what, I don't know that I trust you. That's okay. You don't have to primarily trust me, but you do have to primarily trust God's sovereignty over your life through the form of leadership. You have to do that. And I wonder sometimes in my journey discerning and determining whether I trust someone, I'm beginning to wonder because I'm such a sinful individual, if I'm really making the issue about that person or if I'm really making the issue about me. I'm wondering, is it really about my trust of them, or is it really about me and what I feel that I might deserve? Is it really about what I feel I may be deprived of? That's why God offers us the great news. Listen, as you submit to any form of authority whatsoever, ultimately God is in control, and He is sovereign over all things, including the form of government that you are currently under whether it be on a national level or whether it be the home or the government that's established in your home right now. Beloved, make peace with that. Make peace ultimately, first and foremost, with the Lord Himself in relation to that because that's where your peace is going to come from. So I want you to take a moment and I want you to do that and you reflect. I want you to reflect on all of your responses to authorities that are placed over you. How do you feel? Is there fear? Is there dread? Is there hope? Is it hopeless? Know who it is to love this morning that ultimately you are submitting to. Yeah, we're the Caesar the things that are Caesar, but we're to God the things that are God's. And guess what? Everything is God's. Everything. As we render back, as we give back, we give back as unto the Lord because He's established those things.
Yeah, I think maybe by nature we're a suspicious people. God, we're human. We failed. We've fallen. We've failed. We've failed you. We've failed each other. Oh, God, if we responded to forms of authority based upon our humanity and just simply the call to do that, it might be might be a stoic, burdensome task. God, you've given us good news. And the good news that you've given us is that ultimately our submission, God, is to you because you own it all. You've established it all. You've placed it all strategically, sovereignly. And God, ultimately, you've done it for our good. We can talk about the unfairness. We can talk about the disgruntlements. We can talk about the uncertainties. But God, you care more about the condition of the hearts of your people than you do about the form of government we're under. Because as one author said, forms of government do not send people to hell. Then sinful hearts send people to hell. So we rejoice, Lord, in the fact that, God, we know that we can walk confidently into the truth and in the truth that God ultimately, yes, we're going to go to our workplaces, we're going to go into our homes, we're going to follow employers, we're going to follow husbands, we're going to follow parents, but God ultimately and certainly we are following primarily you. And that's our hope. So Father, we desire submission. We desire to submit, we desire to give it up, we desire to turn it over, we desire to release it all for your glory, and be led ultimately by you. Knowing that, Lord, there's that time that may come where you have to draw that line in the sand. We're reminded of Peter who said, okay, that's enough. I'll follow you, I'll let you lead me, but the moment that you tell me to not speak about what Jesus has done, what he said, who he is, that's the moment I draw that line. So, Lord, otherwise we follow the authorities over us and we do it ultimately for your glory because you care about that. You care about our hearts. So, God, change our hearts if necessary. And may we follow those in authority over us for your glory and as a reflection of the reality of the gospel in us. That you are sovereign and you are in control. Pray these things in Jesus' name. I want to ask you if you would stand with me. want to pray, you're more than welcome to come forward. We'll pray. You can pray where you are. But I just pray that you would respond ultimately, guys, ultimately to the authority of God over our lives. I love you.